today on Ag News Daily. It gives a, a sense of, you know, their, where their mindset is as a global citizen. What do they know about FAO? What do they know about uh, uh, sustainable agriculture and stuff like that? Well, listeners, thank you. It's not Friday the 13th. We're sitting here Thursday, April 13, 2023, Ag News Daily Edition. Delaney and Tanner here to bring you some great headlines. And I'm excited to hear what Delaney's got in store for us. See if we can uh, share some of the latest news and get our listeners thinking, right? Yes. Tanner, do you have any weather news to share with us? Because that's usually your first beep. <laughs> Just it's more of the same. If you listened yesterday, you understand that we've got high winds and dry areas with relatively low humidity. I mean, we're talking a huge area of the U.S. here from southern Arizona all the way to northern Michigan. National Weather Service continues to uh, talk about that. We've got Oklahoma, Texas panhandles with gusts up to 45 miles per hour. Iowa and Wisconsin are seeing 30 miles per hour with humidity under 20 percent. Northern Michigan, even up to 30 miles per hour up there as well. So it seems like if we do get any sparks that ignite fires, uh, there's a large portion of the U.S. that may struggle getting them put out. Yeah, and that's kind of the opposite, right, of what we're seeing with the weather patterns, because we're supposed to be shifting into an El Nino pattern, Tanner, which should be cooler temps and wetter conditions and smaller or less winds. But that's not really what we're seeing currently. Yeah, not yet. I think that's probably on its way. I know that if you look into the 10-day forecast, even just into this weekend, there's a chance of rain in Iowa on Saturday. Uh, but we'll see if there's a bigger system moving through then. Well, Tanner, got some exciting news here for folks living in the state of Colorado. They are the first state to pass the nation's first agriculture equipment right to repair bill as of Tuesday, putting the state at odds with John Deere and major equipment manufacturers that have signed agreements with major agricultural groups not to pursue legislation. If you think back here at the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual convention, John Deere announced a new agreement with AFBF to expand access to repair materials. But the public interest research group and other repair advocates really avidly opposed the agreement. In March, we also saw CNH Industrial announce their own MOU with AFBF that closely minor mirrored the deer agreement, but Colorado is the first official state that is going to require deer and other equipment manufacturers to share access to all materials needed by farmers and independent shops to repair tractors, combines, and other farm equipment. And similar legislation, Tanner, has been introduced in at least 11 different states this year. So it'll be interesting to see if other states also pass this legislation. And I know it's a very contentious issue. So curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, it, it's interesting as you read a lot of articles around this. Of course, uh, when you get to the manufacturer side of things, the, the PR released statements are pretty clear. You know, for example, John Deere said that they support their customers' decision to repair their own products, utilize an independent repair shop service and have repairs completed by an authorized dealer. John Deere also said that they provide manuals and parts diagnostic tools to those repair shops and feel strongly that the legislation in Colorado is unnecessary and will carry unintended consequences. So uh, certainly a little bit of a, a snapback there towards the end of their press release, but I know a lot of the customers and a lot of the listeners that we have 
like the freedom of being able to take their equipment anywhere that they want to or repair it themselves. But getting the diagnostics portion has always seems to be the most difficult part of that. So uh, we'll interested to see if other states follow suit or what the fallout is of Colorado's ruling. Yeah, it certainly will be. Yeah. So otherwise, back to hit a little bit on the inflation that I discussed yesterday, uh, that was talking about core inflation. Well, the wholesale level also continued a downward slide here for March. The annualized price sunk dramatically to 2.7%, down from 4.6%, according to the producer price index that came out. Uh, on a monthly basis, producer prices slumped by a half percent. Economists were expecting annual inflation to land at three, so that 2.7 came in under three. So inflation there, even on the wholesale side, did have the same effect. Grocery prices were also lower. The March Consumer Price Index stated that the annual inflation rate remained still well above all-time average. All consumer prices were up 5% compared to last March, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. But that is the smallest 12-month over month increase measure since May of 21. So that's a big win there. So the first time in two years that that margin has lowered to 5%. Higher prices, obviously, for shelter uh, offset the decline in grocery prices. 12-month food inflation measure pegged at 8.5% in March. Prices rose over 8.4% in the last 12 months. And uh, it looks like eggs actually led the slide down by dropping 11% last month. Of course, we're continuing to see cereals and bakery products uh, at the peak there, uh, including, like I said, previously stated the eggs before that. But restaurants are still feeling a little bit of the prunt, uh, crunch. As you go in and order off the menu, you'll still see on average 8.8% higher prices than last year. So a little bit of a softening there, maybe. Maybe a turning point in the inflation side of things, Delaney. And the eggs thing is huge because weren't we up like 110% year over year? Yeah, so 11% is not that big of a deal, but it is the first decline in quite a while. That's a 10% drop, Tanner, or not quite. Yes, ma'am. Good job with your math. Thank you. I can do percentages fairly well. Don't ask me to do the other stuff. <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, we've got some uh, a couple of pieces of legislative news here. Iowa is the first state to pass legislation restricting drone surveillance of livestock facilities without the permission of the property owner. They passed the bill. House file 57-2 becomes law now, which would prevent remotely piloted aircrafts to fly within 400 feet of homesteads or areas where agricultural animals are kept. People caught violating these restrictions would face a simple misdemeanor for intruding on farm airspace and could face a serious misdemeanor charge if the device records images, sounds, or other data. This bill is a response to animal welfare organizations documenting conditions and treatment of animals at Iowa livestock and dog breeding facilities, specifically Tanner. We also know that Iowa legislators have repeatedly tried to pass the so-called ag-gag law, but judges have ruled those laws unconstitutional. So it'll be interesting to see if this latest measure to protect animal agriculture 
farmers and ranchers will be upheld in higher courts should it go that far. And I'm sure it probably will at some point in the future. Yeah, that's a pretty big move. I mean, I think a lot of our livestock producers would appreciate the restrictions on surveillance. Uh, it's Thursday, so that's ethanol reporting day. Ethanol output did plunge to its lowest level in three months last week, but inventories were a little bit unchanged. So that's a uh, good news there. Average output dropped to 959,000 barrels per day in the week through April 7th. That's down from over a million barrels per day the week before that. The inventories have dropped slightly uh, they are at 25.128 million barrels. That's down from 25.136. So even though we had low production last week, Delaney, we didn't see that large of a slide in our inventories. Speaking of ethanol and other grain-based products, there is a soy-based product piloted as a sustainable solution for rough rural roads. I know that we've talked a little bit here locally about a soy bonded asphalt. Now the Soy Transportation Coalition has announced a partnership with Knox County, Illinois and Poor Shield. Poor Shield is a soy based concrete enhancer. The STC launched this pilot project to determine the effectiveness for the product in stabilizing roads and preventing further damage. So this is a product that will be applied to paved roads and bridges, particularly for farmers that have limited county funds available to maintain them. The rural road challenges are not limited to Illinois where this has started, uh, but is a great testing ground for them as 43% of all public roads were listed as poor or mediocre in condition. So we're interesting to keep up on that soy-based product, Delaney, to see if Poor Shield and their pilot project can move on. Looks like it started in November of 22 in Knox County where they applied uh, this product to transverse joints of two and a half miles of eight-year-old concrete. And now they will monitor the degrading product there as they did a lane-by-lane -lane comparison. So new technology, maybe going to create some more demand on the soy side. Well, Tanner, one thing that's not going to create a lot of uh, repeal with farmers is the WOTUS of or excuse me, Waters of the U.S., uh, has re received an injunction now on hold in 26 states, states after a federal judge in North Dakota issued a preliminary injunction on Wednesday in 24 of the states that filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration. The U.S. District Court for the District of North Dakota's ruling now prevents enforcement of the WOTUS rule in Alabama, Arkansas, Alaska, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming, Texas, and Idaho. Previously, as we know, received an injunction from the U.S. District Court of Texas, and so they are uh, moving along as planned. But they said that numerous declarations filed in this case by state officials outline in detail the specific costs of state compliance with the EPA's new 2023 rule, as well as the significant infringement on state sovereignty that confers standing on the named plaintiffs. So not fully sure I understand what the next steps are from here. I'm assuming it's going to go to yet even an even higher court, Tanner. Yeah, I think we saw that coming. Uh, obviously, it's going to have to escalate all the way through as there's a lot of discussion around that topic. Last piece I've got today is technology that I might not understand, 
but it's a good thing that it is in the future for us. Possibly farmers, your grain could be tagged with a non-fungible token. Scale tickets from elevators could soon be a document of the past. Your grain could have all of its characteristics attributes filed digitally and accessed via a QR code. Welcome to the growing trend of non-fungible tokens, also known as NFT. Don't let that disturb you or disturb you uh, as it might to me. They're essentially a collection of data, says the co-founder of NGF Global, which is looking to use this technology to track transactions between grain sellers and grain buyers. It's not Bitcoin. NFTs are a living ledger. It's a ledger of data that gets passed through the blockchain. Imagine, as it states here in this article, sending a piece of paper with your grain to everybody who touches it and puts their signature on it so it is tracked from start to finish. He's stating here that this could provide a lot of value to agriculture. The processors and end users would know exactly what the specific characteristics were of the crop that you produce. So interesting to see, Delaney, maybe we'll go straight from a QR code on a bag of seed or a box of seed into the ground, into your bin, tracked the entire way to maybe a tortilla chip. Who knows? Hmm. That'll be interesting to see. Yeah, but that's what I've got today. How about uh, you? I have just one final piece of interesting news to say the least. I'm not really sure why this even needs to be said, but it does call into question why Vilsack has made this remark. But uh, Vilsack apparently very publicly on Wednesday warned meat packers and other companies in the food supply chain that they need to do a better job taking steps to ensure illegal child labor isn't being used in their operations, suppliers, subcontractors or other vendors in a letter to 18 of the country's largest meat and poultry companies Vilsack advised the packing industry to take more action to ensure that their supply chains are not using illegal child labor tanner and that's for anyone i believe that is less than 17 i think is uh, the age here they're looking at well, they apparently found 102 children working from ages 13 to 17 in hazardous occupations, overnight shifts, and in at least 13 meat processing facilities, which is not a huge number, but it's just bizarre that this is getting headlines right now. That's correct. I had seen that headline as well, and I didn't know how to present it. So I'm glad that you brought that uh, into our listeners' attention. But like I said, I'm out. So let's take a look at markets. Absolutely. Well, as we head into the opening session here today, seeing a little bit of excitement in the soybean markets. May soybeans up 11 cents in the overnight will open at 15.15. New crop soybeans up six cents on the day at 13.13 and three quarters. May corn up a penny and a half in the overnight at 6.57 and a half. New crop will ring in at 5.50 down a quarter or down a half a penny here in the overnights. Hard red May winter wheat down 12 and a quarter cent to open at 8.51 and a quarter. Taking a look to see where the livestock markets ended yesterday is a quick reminder for our listeners. April live cattle, excuse me, June live cattle will open 90 cents higher at a buck 64.85. May feeders 75 cents higher on the board at 208.57. And May lean hogs shed 85 cents yesterday will open today at 81.52 and a half. Tanner, we're taking it over to part two of Jennifer's conversation with Dr. Joe Coletti. Wow, Dr. 
Dr. Coletti. You are doing a great job at answering so many of my questions within your answers. This is absolutely amazing. And I would like to dive in more to these projects specifically. Um, you have talked about the formation of the relationship with FAO, kind of the direction of the projects. And within your time, I'd like to touch on what specific projects were studied when students were working with yourself and with the FAO during the travel courses? Well, that's really good, a really good uh, question. And, and I'll, it's been a variety of different departments that we worked with, uh, everything from uh, we did a, in the, the first year was an analysis of some uh, seed security um, evaluations that were done by another party. And we were asked, our student team was asked to really to take a look at this evaluation by a, or by a non-government organization. And does it make sense? You know, is there something missing? You understand, you know, here's what the, the criteria are for a, a food, a, a seed security system in a country to, to uh, be well qualified and, and impactful. What do you think? And all the way to We've had a lot of work on animal genetics uh, resources, conservation of rare breeds, you know, a lot of animal source protein uh, work of figuring out exactly, are there some, we know that there's a lot of uh, attention on a, a small subset of say beef cattle or pork, but are there some lesser known um, types of, of those species of, of pigs or cattle or even goats or sheep or whatever that, that are important culturally and important food sources. Uh, maybe that it's milk, maybe it's meat, maybe it's a, a variety of, of fur products or, or hide products and that sort of thing done, you know, for, for fuel. And so we've had projects, the students have evaluated, you know, what, what do we know uh, from the literature? What do we know from different countries about these these rare breeds that are important culturally and economically, and part of the whole mix of how um, you know sustainable agriculture could exist in in these various uh, countries. We had a projects uh, on uh, uh, edible insects, and that was really an interesting one because there's lots of you know, particularly in Asia, there's lots of uh, uh, cultural importance and, and access to different, from crickets to mealworms and so on. And, and so, you know, FAO wanted to know, well, what, what's the nutritional value? And, and are, what are the upsides and downsides? What are the unintended consequences of, of producing insects in mass uh, as an alternative source of, of protein and fatty acids and so on? We also have, there's something called the InFoods database that is run out of one of the departments and we worked with uh, uh, Dr. Ruth uh, Chandra uh, on several of these where our, uh, the Lonergans, uh, Stephen and Elizabeth out of Animal Science, we, they worked on, a team worked on actually standing up new data into that very, very rigorous, uh, scientifically rigorous uh, database that you can go to InFoods database and say, what's the nutritional value? What's the makeup? protein, fat, all the other uh, carbohydrate complexes and so on of uh, vegetables or meat. And they didn't have really anything about beef uh, in this. So, so our students put it together, <laughs> you know, so it's right out there and it's uh, in use and it's, it's accurate. 
It's scientifically vetted uh, through a, a very rigorous process. And, and so you see that it's not just uh, like doing uh, literature reviews or something like that. It's something that you the students are putting products together, work products that make a difference. And they go right into, in that case, into the InFoods database uh, and have uh, you know, a historical and, and constant use. And it's a, a scientifically viable, important uh, data. We also had uh, projects on uh, several on the Mediterranean diet. And interesting uh, that even in Italy, uh, a lot of the school children, uh, elementary school children, while they live in uh, where the Mediterranean diet should be known, they, they didn't have a lot of information you know, in the educational system. So one team put together uh, basically uh, educational unit uh, for the Italian uh, school system to use about the Mediterranean diet to teach the young kids rather than the chips or, or some processed food to, you know, what is the Mediterranean diet and why is that, why is that a healthier uh, diet for, for humans and so on. So it's been a, a wide variety of projects and uh, there was actually a, a recent one too about just the, you know, this artificial meat that is so-called a lab grown meat that's coming up. Well, you know, the FAO wanted to know what, you know, what, what do people think about that? What's the science behind it? What is the, what are the ethical issues? What are the legal, you know, what are the actual costs associated with it? You know, what are the, what's the nutrient profile? What's the fatty acid profile of this, of these various lab grown uh, meats. So they're always thinking the departments and the projects that, uh, that our students work on, they come together because of the discussion of our, we always send uh, at least two faculty members uh, some uh, for a four-week period, the in-country period, and especially, and uh, you know, there's a, a male uh, faculty member and a female, uh, and they and they work sometime starting in say December, November of the previous year to actually uh, communicate with the different departments and say, hey, we, you know, you've got we've got our project, our program will be in existence next year. This is absent of the COVID two years that uh, nothing happened. But anyway, they so they have conversations with their colleagues in FAO, our faculty do, and they say, yeah, the FAO colleagues say, yeah, here's two, a project or two projects or three projects that, that we really want done, but we just don't have all the, the people. We don't have the intellectual capacity to do it. Uh, and so our faculty then with the cohort of students, like yourself, Jennifer, and your other cohort for this year, 2023 uh, group, that uh, you then will have projects to, uh, to evaluate yourself, and then you form into uh, teams. And we, as you know, we, we spend a lot of time, you know, this is the thing that happens uh, in for, for private entities, companies, industries, and also NGOs and government, a lot of teaming, a lot of and there's a lot of science behind how do you become a, a team and a, particularly a high functioning team. So we want to make sure that that our students so that you are trained uh, with that and that our colleagues in FAO know that it's not going to be if it's all about it's a project, say, about animal genetic resources. We don't want all animal scientists on that on that team. It, it, it's really great to have somebody that's like yourself in ag, in ag journalism 
or uh, in rural sociology or agronomy or forestry or whatever uh, to be part of that student team. Uh, it brings that diversity of thinking, that higher quality of, uh, of both the analysis, synthesis, and evaluation to the project. So the projects come together by that, that partnership between our faculty and FAO departments, and then those projects are put before students, and then they, with a little nudging and, and helping and, and cajoling by the faculty, uh, you form into uh, you know, a team, and you, you focus on a particular project. And so the last half of the spring semester, you and your colleagues are working on that project at a distance and probably have several communication by email, by Zoom or Skype or WebEx or whatever it is with colleagues in FAO at FAO. And then you go in country immediately after the spring semester and work uh, very diligently as a, as a undergraduate uh, consultant research team. Uh, and a lot of interactions, a lot of daily con communication, face-to-face -face meetings, and then uh, the producing of the various work products, which in all cases have always been a public presentation of the final results, plus whatever the written uh, uh, artifacts or the, the various, maybe it was a infographic or learning module, that sort of thing. Those, those physical products were, were presented to the clients as well. Absolutely. You gave so many different things that I think are so important to take note of. For example, you touched on the culture basis of sustainable agriculture and how it's important to recognize that not everyone's diets are the same as what we as typical Americans consume. So it's important to take that into consideration, especially when working with the FAO, because I also feel like on the sustainable agriculture side, when us here in the Midwest typically think of sustainable agriculture as row cropping systems in the fields, over there it's more focused on just different ways of sustaining food and what they already have available and taking the genetics to make it even stronger in the end. So you did a great job at providing all of that information. And going in a little bit of a different direction, looking at the student aspect of participating in this opportunity, how have you seen it affect students' outlooks on sustainable agriculture by working with the FAO and doing their projects? And how have you seen it affect their futures and their careers post-graduation as well? Because I'm sure you still have some connections with students that you have traveled with. Yeah, that very good question. One of the things that we do uh, at the beginning of this uh, course, once the students are selected, they apply and are selected into the uh, into the program. We call it the Rome program for short. It's uh, the um, students are they fill out a questionnaire that gives a, a sense of you know their where their mindset is as a global citizen. What do they know about? FAO, what do they know about uh, uh, sustainable agriculture and stuff like that? And it really, there's a series of questions that we have in this, uh, this uh, questionnaire. It's the pre-questionnaire. It's what, what the students fill out right at the beginning. And we ask them to fill out the same questionnaire after they've ended their project. You know, once they're in country and once everything is done, the project uh, final presentation and products are, are delivered, you know, you fill it out. So we see 
And it's a Likert scale type of valuation. We see an improvement. We see a change. In, and it's not just that people, the students put a bubble number by, you know, I went from a five to a seven or something on this particular question. But we also ask them to say why. And it's really in that those responses of why that we see uh, clearly that a lot of our students, uh, I'd say that maybe half or more have really not had a, a, an, an experience, anything close to this. They might have had a, a travel, they participated in one of our great uh, global uh, study abroad courses, but they might have just traveled you know, around. And, and this is where they, they work in a team setting on a project with a client and an and a expectation of really uh, quality work as as a scientific uh, as scientists and so um, that's one set of evidence the other is that we ask just in at the end uh, tell us what you thought about the program what what did we do well what did we not do so well that we should improve on and often we get we get great comments on both of those from the students but I mean you you all give us feedback and say hey this was tr transformative for me I, I was thinking about I wanted to go into, you know, work for a multinational for profit, but now I'm thinking about a not for profit organization. I'm really thinking about that more uh, social or civic entrepreneurship, and I want to give back through Heifer International or some other uh, NGO. So we get that type of feedback. And then on to the question of whether we see students go on from, you know, participation in this program. <clears throat> to uh, they go to law school, they go to med school, they they go to pharmacy school, they they go into um, you know graduate work to get a master's or a PhD, and or and they go into uh, uh, different political positions uh, na nationwide. You know they might go in, work with a company uh, for profit and that sort of thing. So it really is a um, a quality enhancement type of opportunity where, where students, by and large, you know, has everyone said, yeah, it's been really transformational for me? Probably not, probably not. <laughs> but we have a lot of responses of that nature, that this was just life changing. Uh, and that I, there's some things that I took about this, maybe it's the project itself. To us, it as faculty and to my, my thinking, it's about as much about the journey and understanding, you know, what sustainability is, what through the lens of uh, an entity like FAO, what are the issues that they have to deal with? And then how do you work as a team? You know, a team of students from different disciplines and backgrounds here at Iowa State, but also very importantly, it gives you a good feel. Well, what would it be like if you were in the, you know, after you finish your bachelor's degree, and if that's the end of your education at that point, you know, you work with a, a company, or whatever, you're like, you're likely to you know, have a boss and there's a project and you've got to work with a group of people that you didn't know before. You know, how do you do that? And how do you, how do you uh, resolve issues and how do you actually make a difference and, and get the quality work products accomplished? Uh, that are part of the whatever the whatever that uh, project is about. So I, I think there's just I you know I haven't gone through with any great detail and and quantified how many students did X Y Z in in different jobs and stuff. But I I know that I know that in in the main 
students that complete this project and everyone who started the project has completed this, the Globe 495, 497 uh, and their projects. And they, and they come away saying, yeah, this made a difference uh, to me personally. And I think it is making a difference uh, maybe in small steps <laughs> to, uh, to FAO achieving its, its various uh, 17 uh, sustainable development goals. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Coletti. I really appreciate it. Well, there you go. Thanks to Jennifer for putting that together. Uh, listeners, if you like part two and uh, longer interviews like that, let us know because we can always reach out and get a little bit more in depth on topics if that's something you want to hear. We've got one more tomorrow, Friday, April 14th. So check back in with us. Delaney, what do you say for today? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let him go.